All right. Um, well, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks. For, this is day two of the uh, Water for Food Conference, the fourth uh, annual. Um, an update uh, from yesterday when I said we had over 530 people registered. Apparently a number of people walked in off the street. We have over 545 registered now uh, attending, so it's the largest one of these conferences. And I, I think it's in no small part due to the outstanding uh, participants that we have uh, yesterday. Uh, for those of you who didn't have an opportunity to be here, we led off with, uh, I think, a great program with uh, Dr. Roberto Lenton, the founding director of the Doherty Institute, Malin Falkenmark, uh, who really uh, conceptualized the green-blue water uh, notion for uh, for us, and as the theme of this year's conference, Colin Chartres, uh, the director of uh, EMI, uh, which has won this year's World Water Prize in Stockholm. So we're delighted to have uh, Colin here uh, as well, and Ruth Meisendick did a terrific uh, job yesterday uh, discussing the importance of the, of the commons uh, in these issues. Uh, today, I hope you had a chance this morning as we kicked off with a, uh, with a great uh, panel, the Global uh, Harvest Initiatives, a, a significant effort by leading uh, companies uh, to address the issues of food security, including uh, the important issue of, of water as it relates to food security. We're delighted to have a Nebraska farmer moderate uh, that uh, panel. Uh, uh, Jeff Rakes has a, uh, also a, uh, a sideline at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has been one of the uh, chief uh, uh, sponsors and supporters of this conference and this whole idea of creating an institute about how to how to uh, uh, use water effectively to grow uh, crops to feed a growing world population. And Jeff has been a great uh, thought leader in this since the beginning has challenged, pushed, and pulled us, and continues to serve as a, a board member of the Doherty Institute, which is a great uh, benefit for us. Um, uh, on that panel, we had four great panelists, but in the interest of uh, efficiency and time, we've invited one of them to join us, Representative John Soper, who did a great job uh, this morning, and John has been a real leader in this area as Vice President for Crop Genetics Research at, at Pioneer, uh, and in charge of uh, Pioneer's global effort in, uh, in in, uh, crop genetics. Um, later today, uh, we are going to hear, uh, we've had a panel on women, water, and food. It was an issue really that came up last year in some uh, discussions, I think, at dinner one evening about the importance of this, of this subject. So we took that thought and decided we would create a panel around it this year. And uh, Simi Kamal from the Hisser Foundation in Pakistan, we heard from this morning at the, at the open mic, will be leading that discussion. So um, we've got a great uh, day today, uh, following yesterday. Uh, we wanted to provide an opportunity for the media just to have a chance to ask a few questions to these people. So I'm going to just ask them to um, maybe in uh, 60 to 90 seconds or a few more kind of capture the essence and then hopefully we'll get your questions, which will. Um, I've always found that if we allow you to ask a question, then we know you're interested in the answer. So it's a good way to start. So if we start uh, here, Roberto and uh, you're not even going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything uh, today. I said everything I wanted to say yesterday. Um, <laughs> and uh, maybe uh, best for Simi to uh, talk a little bit about what she will do. Simi, would you uh, stand here so we can? Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, women and their views often get lost 
especially at big conferences, and especially when we are talking about water and food, because although they are very closely connected to water and food, they aren't really into decision making. They're not the ones deciding whether dams are going to be put and you know where the big infrastructure is going to go. So we are trying to bring that voice back, back into the debate and back into the discussion on water and food. So this panel today should be of great interest. We are going to begin by hearing uh, two women farmers, really different, one from Iowa and one from Africa, talking about the experiences, how they did it, what were their challenges, what did they, what what obstacles did they have to meet in order to be where they are today, and what are the issues they continue to face. Then we are going to have a young speaker from Nepal who's going to be talking about uh, the situation of patriarchy and women's activism in the water and food sectors in all of South Asia, and then she's going to be focusing on what is happening in Nepal. And after that, we will hear about experiences from South America, where there has been far more progress in terms of uh, coming up with laws and with the governance systems to actually control or regulate water and food production. So we're going to have somebody from there going talking about uh, how those have made a difference in the lives of women, especially women farmers, and then uh, quoting examples uh, from Brazil. Uh, you'll be interested to know that uh, Two, two out of these, three out of these four panelists are actually women farmers themselves, and uh, they are—they uh, have taken on the family's uh, farm. Some of them have built them from scratch. So I think it would be of great interest. We are then going to have two discussants who are going to be looking at what has come up from these four um, people who are directly involved in women's activism or in farming. And so I think it should be a very interesting discussion. What we are trying to move towards is building a very strong women's voice especially in the decision-making process, so that the water infrastructure, the technologies, the old wisdom, we need to put it all together so that we can actually get to a point where we can feed 9 billion people in the year 2050. Thank you. Thank you, um, Jeff, you sure. want to say a few words, and then John, and then we'll open this to questions. Great. Well, thank you very much. I'm Jeff Rake, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's a great honor to be here, and it's fabulous to see how this conference has continued to grow because the issue that it's taking on continues to grow. Uh, as has been emphasized, we've got a big challenge uh, to try and feed 9 billion people and to try and do that with constraints on land and water resources. And so we really have to think through these issues and it has to be a collective effort. And this morning my panel really emphasized the importance of a collective effort. We were joined by John and, and uh, representatives of, of Monsanto, John Deere, Alanco, in addition to his company Pioneer Hybrid, to talk about the role that the private sector can play in working with the public sector, academia, civil society organizations, and in our case, catalytic philanthropy, to try and bootstrap innovative interventions that are going to really make a difference on behalf of the people that we serve. One of the things that Simi said that I really want to emphasize is the importance of the role of women. And that's another thing to me that's exciting about the conference this year. For example, in sub-Saharan Africa, as much as 70% or more of agricultural labor is the uh, women in the in the families, and so it's extremely important to bring that voice in and be a part of this cross sector collaboration in order to take on this challenge. I am absolutely convinced that the assets here in Nebraska, the university, our agricultural heritage, the focus on water, are going to be key elements of taking on this global challenge. So thank you very much. 
Yeah, good morning. I'm John Soper, Vice President of CropGenetics Research and Development at Pioneer, and I was very pleased to serve as a member of the panel. I think it was a great opportunity for people with lots of different perspectives to share their ideas with a group of panelists who really represent industry. At the same time, I think we were able to talk about the different efforts that industry is making, both in their uh, businesses, but also in their interactions with NGOs and governments around the world. There was certainly a lot of interest in small uh, landholders, small farmer landholders, and uh, we were maybe able to dispel some of the myths that we don't care about those individuals. In fact, uh, we have millions of small farmer landholders that are our customers in places like India and Pakistan and uh, Philippines and Thailand and China and even Africa. So it was a great opportunity to talk about that and a, and a great forum to bring some feedback to us that we continue to consider as we develop our future business plans and also our plans to interact with government agencies and NGOs and such to, to make a better world to get this world fed. So thank you very much. Thanks, John. Okay, um, so we'd like to open it uh, to questions now, um, particularly, I think, from uh, Simi and Jeff and, and John, while we have an opportunity to have them here with us. Please. Uh, this will be for Jeff. Uh, you mentioned the collective efforts, mm -hmm. and it's one thing to do that in a developed country like we have here. What are some of the barriers to getting that collective effort in some of the developing countries that, that you're involved in? Right. Yeah, in terms of the barriers um, that that may, may be there in working with developing countries. I think, first of all, uh, I would focus in on the opportunity. Many of the organizations that we are working with are global multinational uh, organizations, and that gives them a perspective of the world that, that's very valuable. However, what we have to do is we have to bring the technology, bring the advances, bring the new practices to the farmer. It really has to be with the farmer. And so I would actually say the biggest challenge that I see is not in how we create possible options, possible technologically based uh, improvements, but how we prove that they are going to work well for the farmer, how we make sure that the farmer had a voice in the design development of those interventions, and then ultimately leading to the broad adoption that will improve productivity. So in my view, the biggest challenge has to do with, with how you take on the, the, uh, the ultimate delivery and adoption by farmers and ensuring that their voice is included in as part of the system. Thank you. I apologize for not having a media credential displayed here. I'm Art Hovey from the Journal Star here in town. Uh, I'm I can vouch for you. And uh, remember a book that came out then called The Population Bomb, I think it was. And my question relates to uh, these frequent references to 9 million people by 2050. And what happened to the discussion about trying to hold down the population here? Uh, to try to keep up with food security, it seems to me that inevitably we won't be able to keep up, uh, no matter how much progress is made with yield and so forth. And I guess I'd be happy to hear from any of you or all of you on that point. 
Well, I don't know where Paul Ehrlich is today, uh, but I've seen the uh, I've seen the growth uh, uh, projections that at uh, nine billion, then there tends to be a tapering off and uh, uh, and maybe even a slight uh, decline. So there does seem to be a, a point of equilibrium. But I'm uh, delighted to uh, ask uh, the uh, folks who are here, anyone who would like to respond to that. It doesn't matter. We okay. share. Yeah, I, I would agree. Worse. The people that we watch, we don't obviously make those projections ourselves, but I think most people who are projecting population growth are expecting a leveling off in 2050, somewhere in that zone. And what, you, of course, you see is that the developed countries have already leveled off. Their population growth rates are slower. One of the real challenges for us as food providers and agricultural suppliers is that the growth that is occurring is in these less developed countries. So it's going to be in Asia and it's going to be in Africa. So the, the places that are uh, struggling the most with food security are the places where those populations are going to grow. So that brings up a, a lot of policy issues. First of all, how do we, how do we uh, move away from a system where most of the grain is produced in the United States? to a system where food is produced in the area where this population growth is occurring. Uh, the other one we talked about this morning was trade barriers. How do you take down some of the trade barriers so that uh, food can be more easily moved across, let's say, the, the borders of African countries? Uh, but there are challenges. But hopefully, hopefully your trend is right, and by uh, 2050, uh, those, those um, numbers do level off. Because I think you're right, we're going to have to take care of that issue eventually, yes. Although, uh, Art, Art, although this is beyond the specific focus on food security and, and water, water for food, I might add that um, our research would show that when you are able to reduce childhood mortality, you actually reduce fertility rates and then reduce population growth. Now, that's counterintuitive. A lot of people would think, well, if you, you uh, reduce childhood mortality, isn't that part of what contributes to the population boom? But when in many of these developing countries, the size of the family is considered to be the social security net for their future, then there's a desire to have enough children in order to provide for the older adults later, later in their life. So if you actually look at the statistics, what you learn is that take Vietnam. Vietnam in 1970 or so had a fertility rate of approximately 7.2. It's down now to about 2.1, about the same as the United States. And it has to do with the reduction in childhood mortality. And that means focusing in on making sure that there's adequate food, the nutrition, food security, that you have health interventions like vaccines that reduce uh, uh, childhood mortality. Those are actually key elements to managing population growth in the future. Not well understood by the broad population uh, or broad public, but it's a very important part of what we do at the Gates Foundation. There's another really important factor which we must uh, keep in mind. When women marry later, 
they get educated, they're likely to have fewer children. So I think what's really important is the whole struggle for women's emancipation in the in the developing world. Um, as you know, we we have feminization of poverty. You can see that. And if you if you look at the history of uh, how relations between men and women have worked out, it wasn't really until the world wars that even in the developed world, women really came out of the home. And you know, with so many men gone, they had to take on those roles, and then the genie would not be put back into the bottle. So. Basically, that's what uh, many of us are working in the developed world. Do you know uh, women themselves wanting fewer children is really important and what we just heard from Jeff is really part of the equation and along with that to have systems where older people could be looked after in uh, in in some other way all of all of these are options that are going to lead to 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 fewer children so let's hope that uh, we really promote women's emancipation i think that's the key to leveling of population in the world can i make a yes please point? One just quick uh, comment related to water, because um, it, the, the issue in the 1970s, as you were saying, there was a great concern about the population bomb for the reasons that uh, Jeff and CB and others were saying. I think the world, in fact, has done better on the population front than some of the worst fears at that time. But countries today see themselves that they, they clearly have a population increase between now and 2050, but they see that there is a huge water uh, crisis and, and their ability to be able to get to 2050 uh, and, and feed the population with their limited water resources, that's what uh, is perhaps the new bomb uh, that countries are worried about today. Okay, uh, I want to make sure I get back and that you have a chance to get back to the conference when it starts up again. So we're going to take one more uh, question if someone has one, a final one they want to ask. Uh, yes? Um, I'm wondering if anyone could share an example of where all these systems work together and how it changed, I don't know, that village or that whatever. Yeah, I'd be glad to share uh, a, a great example. Um, in one of my first visits to Africa for the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I went to the Okolau region of Kenya. And I looked at a, a project that was jointly done with Heifer International, TechnoServe, with funding from the Gates Foundation. This was an area of Kenya that involved smallholder dairy farmers, uh, typically four to five acres. Uh, and um, I, should, I call them dairy farmers, but actually they, they were diversified agriculture, uh, but they did have uh, dairy cattle. They had a situation where they didn't really have access to a market. Uh, maybe somebody would come by on a motorcycle to buy the milk one day, maybe not. In the project with Heifer International and um, uh, TechnoServe, a chilling plant was put in place. And that gave these smallholder farmers a predictable access to the market. There was a price that was available. They knew what that price was going to be for the next three months. That allowed them then to make the choices to invest in quote-unquote technology that would improve their own productivity. The thing I remember most about that visit was a couple I, I saw named David and Lucy. Uh, now, I'm sure Lucy did a lot of the, the, the labor. David actually was the one who spoke with me. And when he was speaking with me, he talked about the, their, their cattle. They had one dairy cow. In that one part of the season, they would get about 15 liters 
per day. That happened to be the more rainy season. They were down to five liters per day in the dry season. So a very big difference. So it was one of those things that introduced me to the issues of water management. But it was a comprehensive thing. How do you improve their feeding? How do you improve their access to better livestock through artificial insemination? So on and so forth. But the most important thing I took away from that was the final uh, comments from David. I asked him, he said, he, I asked him about it, the future for he and Lucy and their family. They were supporting eight people on five acres. And he said to me, and two of them were daughters and both sets of parents. And he said to me he hoped to rebuild his herd to three cattle. I said, rebuild? So what, what do you mean? What happened? You know, he had this one, one cow. He said, well, because of the productivity improvements and the predictable market access with the chilling plant, they sold two of their cattle to put their oldest daughter through university in Nairobi for a hotel management degree. This is what I consistently see around the world for smallholder farmers. When you can provide the combination of tools and technologies and practices that improve their productivity, their first choice is to invest in the education of their children. And that was a very powerful story for me. It is the kind of thing that will lift whole societies out of extreme poverty. So that's my example. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thanks, Amy and uh, Roberto and, and John also. appreciate uh, your comments today. Um, if uh, you have comments, uh, questions during the day, I hope you can uh, buttonhole these uh, speakers or others who are here. Thanks again for being here, uh, and uh, we look forward to the rest of the conference. So, thank you. Great.